This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On today's podcast, you're learning from an entrepreneur that already built a 75-person company and then decided to give it all up to start a new business from scratch. In this episode, you'll learn what he quickly realized when he transitioned from that 75-person company to a brand new business which just had him and his partner, how he ran Facebook ads to validate his new business, and what is premature optimization and how can it kill your business. Today, I'm joined by Mike Chamberlain, co-founder of DustAndThings.com. That's D-U-S-T-A-N-D-T-H-I-N-G-S.com. Dust and Things is a workshop that creates design-led, engraved, and personalized gifts and was started in 2013 and based out of Cardiff. Welcome, Mike. Hi. So tell us a little bit more about your store and uh, what, is, what is the, because you have a lot of products on there, what, is the, uh, what are some of the most popular products? So, yeah, so we specialize in, as you said, design-led and uh, unusual gifts. So our most popular products are, are personalized gifts. So we encourage our customers to basically give us their own ideas, um, tell us you know, the names and uh, dates associated with events for their friends and family, and we basically make one-of-a-kind gifts uh, for them. So uh, our most popular gifts, they tend to be uh, like chopping boards, cheese boards, um, slate, things like this. We basically we do a lot of engraved, um, engraved gifts that can kind of be kept, things that last a lifetime. Great. Yeah, definitely want to get into the uh, customization and personalization kind of, um, I guess, process in a bit. Before we get there, tell us a little bit about your background, because I think I read in your about page where you said that uh, we haven't always been this passionate about what we do for a living. So what were you doing before e-commerce? How did you get into it? Yeah, I, I can't really stress that point enough. How um, I've actually been a business owner for uh, about eight or nine years myself. So I started a, a finance company of my own in 2007 at the age of 22. And it was, it was a company that primarily focused on secured loans and mortgages, that kind of thing. And um, I kind of got into that from working in similar businesses and, uh, and just kind of having this feeling that maybe I can kind of do this on my own and give it a go. So, so I did that and it actually went very well for us. I took on a business partner and we, we built up that company. We, we hit some turbulent times in the, with the credit crunch. Um, and yeah, it, it got very tough. Um, but we kind of we diversified and we started getting into kind of other areas of finance. And, um, and yeah, the, the one thing about that company is it kind of, I felt that like business for me, is, it can be quite a, it's a creative kind of venture. I like the, the creative aspect of business, the design um, that's involved the, the making something from nothing. And I think that business, it just kind of got to the point where for me, all the fun stuff, it just mm-hmm. was kind of done. Um, it's, uh, there was nothing more to do. It was a big company. It got to about 75 staff in the end. Um, and yeah, I just, it was the right time for me to bow out and just create something new. 
that's amazing that you're able to grow that, uh, especially from such a young age, you know, 22 to build a, a business that supports 75 uh, employees. So what was that uh, transition? Like, how did you, um, maybe inside your own head, like mentally, how did you transition from like a super successful business that you already had going to now starting from scratch again? Yeah, I've got to be honest. I think the fact that I... The fact that the company was successful meant that I had shares that were that were worth something at that time. So it was a relatively easy decision at the time. When you've got something of value, an asset that you can sell, and you can mm-hmm. have a little bit of money in your back pocket, it, it makes the jump over to to go into to having nothing just that little bit easier. So yeah, that that definitely uh, was a deciding factor for me. The, the, the you know the timing was right as far as um, my, I wasn't that attracted to it anymore. And the fact that I could have a bit of money there and invest it in something else, um, it made things a lot easier. Yeah, I can definitely see that where, you know, obviously having the resources makes that decision a lot easier. You don't have as much risk involved. There, there's no kind of so much of that kind of stress involved. But, you know, you spend, I think you said you spent eight years in this business. You knew how to run it. You knew how to run your own business. You knew how to exist in the industry, in the marketplace for that particular uh, type of business that you're running. But now you had to run a whole different type of business. Was there any fear there, though, about, you know, whether you could do it or not? Not so much like where you'd be able to pay the bills, but then like, uh, I guess maybe for your own ego, were you able to feel like, can I do this again with a totally different business? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd say that the one thing, the one overriding issue for me was, um, I, I mean, I, I started my original business and I ran it kind of on my own for about a year and that was fine for me because it was just me. We, we I had no staff at that point. Um, when, when I take on, when I took on my business partner, you share responsibilities and my business partner was kind of, um, extremely important for the growth of that company. He was very super, super ambitious. I was ambitious as well, but he was much more the risk taker and he was also much more the, the guy who would manage the staff and motivate the staff. So I knew that by, by cutting ties with him and, and going at it on my own with the intention of making another big company, I knew that I would have to fill those gaps, if you like. You know, the, the, the onus would be on me. I'm the one that has to motivate the staff. I'm the one that's going to have to you know, learn those things and, and, and become more kind of multi-skilled. So that was my biggest concern. Yeah, I can see that because you, you obviously hired 75 people and now, and you probably depend on a lot of them to fill in a lot of the gaps, like you're saying, but now when you're off on your own, it's you and then many gaps now that you have to fill on your own or eventually work your way back up by hiring staff. Um, so you just kind of want to lay out the timeline here. So you uh, left the company, you sold your shares, you left with, uh, you know, definitely uh, money from that. And now you decided that you wanted to do, to start dusting things. Maybe, I guess, was it during the time that you were already uh, working at this job, were you starting to, were this, I guess, did you already have the seed plant and you're already thinking about doing this or did you take some time off and then came to uh, this idea of starting Dustin Things? Yeah, so Dustin Things was kind of underway while I was still working there. And the reason why, the business was originally created for my, uh, my fiancé, Sean, who's actually the co-founder of Dustin Things. Um, so the business was originally created as kind of a, uh, like a sideline income for her mm-hmm. um, to make wedding stationery. 
So Sean was in university at the time. She was studying, again, something unrelated to, to business or e-commerce or anything. She was studying environmental conservation. And she kind of had this feeling that she wanted to do something creative in her spare time um, and, you know, earn a little bit of extra money. So Dust and Things was kind of, it was created without the intention of being a big company or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, and yeah, and we kind of quickly realized that there was kind of more potential in there, that there could be something in there which will allow both of us to, to really um, do something creative that we really love for a living. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about this, because you're saying that you started it or she started it uh, without knowing um, what you were going to do with it, I guess, initially, just had this idea of doing it on the side, and then it started to become a big business, or at least you saw it becoming a big business. And, you know, a lot of people out there and they're listening either are in that path where they're just kind of doing it on their own, and all of a sudden they see it can be a legitimate business, and then there's a, probably a, maybe a majority of people out there that are actively seeking out to build a business. If they're not, you know, just trying to do it on the side, and then it just kind of falls into place. So what about your experience? What about your your time with Dust and Things in the early days? What did you see about it that, that you made you realize like, wow, this could actually become something uh, bigger and because it could become a legitimate business? Yeah, so what actually happened for us was um, Sean was uh, Sean was making wedding invitations uh, by hand and handmade wedding invitations. If there's anyone who's listening who's ever done this is it's one of these jobs that you kind of have to be extremely passionate about it's, it's not a profitable business um it's long hours it's, it's hard work um and sean kind of quickly realized this and me with my business head on was trying to think of a way that we could kind of optimize this process and make the process of, of making these invitations better and more efficient and try and make it more profitable so in the process of doing that we went out and bought a, a laser cutter laser engraver and uh to actually cut the paper and and what we did was we then eventually started putting other things in the laser cutter and uh and we started applying some designs to cheese boards chopping boards things like this and uh and just thinking there might there might be some kind of a a market here for this so that the way we actually proved the business was i think we picked the best time to do it because it was christmas time at, at the time and uh we we put a a couple of chopping boards in the uh, in the machine, and we put some designs on, and we kind of themed them uh, around Christmas, I think. And we'd taken some photographs at home and put them online. The way we kind of validated whether there was kind of any legs in this was we we set up some Facebook adverts, and the way we looked at it was we are just going to put some money into this and just see if there's an appetite for this and just see kind of how big the appetite is we didn't necessarily go into it and say we're gonna we're gonna make some money here um we agreed that the the goal was to break even you know if, if we can put a big budget behind this on, on facebook ads and just see if there's an appetite for it and we break even then then great or at least we'll find out kind of uh, you know whether people actually want this product so that's what we did so we we actually put in probably quite a large facebook budget for for a business that doesn't really probably probably properly exist yet, and uh, yeah, and that's what we did. That's kind of how we got our validation, which gave us the confidence to kind of go forward. I guess it sounds quite quite risky, but it, it worked for us. 
I think that's a, a common, um, I guess, approach that people recommend, which is to to just pay for traffic initially to see if anybody will be willing to, uh, first of all, click on it, and then second of all, more, most importantly, uh, actually buy something. So what was the, the process like now? Because I think this is a stage that a lot of people are at where they're trying to validate their business or are not sure yet if it's a legitimate, uh, I guess, demand. Um, so tell us a little bit about the, the the process. Like what kind of ads were you running? Like were they, uh, or let's start there. Like what kind of ads were you running and what did they look like? Um, so we were running um, kind of single image adverts um, which literally just had a, a, a photograph. When I look back on it now, I think these are pretty poor photographs. But in hindsight, you know, when you're in kind of startup business and you've got to look after the pennies, so it, whatever we did back then, it, it definitely worked. Um, there were photographs of chopping boards, um, really nothing special. They were lifestyle shots, so of the products being used. And these are shots that you took yourself or? Yeah, these are just photos that we snapped ourselves. Um, I don't think we used an iPhone or anything. I think we used a proper camera. Um, and myself and Sean have both got a kind of a bit of design experience in Photoshop. So we would have edited them and tidied them up and make, made them look nice. We definitely would have sized them, um, you know, the correct size so that it looked right on, on the advert. Um, and then we, we set up some different variants of those adverts so we tried different text um different images different colors that kind of thing and we kind of went through a real quick process of optimization so we had we had a, a pretty big budget every day I, I can't tell you how much that budget was but i remember that it was it was a lot i think by the end of our kind of trial period i think we'd spent probably about two thousand pounds mm-hmm. yeah that's a good amount for a business that like you're saying doesn't exist yet yeah and do you yeah. think that that's required for someone out there that that's thinking about starting this? Could they could it work at a smaller scale, or do you have to kind of shell out that kind of money um, off the bat or right off the bat? I would definitely say that it can work at a smaller scale. Yeah, I think that um, I, I'm coming at this. I, I, we, we've kind of entered this business with the luxury of having um, having a bit of savings in the bank, and I think that that definitely is uh, it makes things a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So. I can totally sympathize. I mean, when I first set, when I set up my first business, I didn't have that luxury. Um, so if, if I was not in that position, I would have started with a much smaller budget. I would have been a lot more concerned about losing that money. But then, on another token, you know, if you're on a, if you're on a daily budget and you can see your sales coming through on a, on a, on a daily basis, it, it's not the type of thing you're never going to lose fifteen hundred pounds or, or two thousand pounds because as long as you're on top of it and you're mm-hmm. making sure that your sales coming in, you've got the facility to switch that advertising off if you if it's not working you know yeah. what, what we the reason why our budget was so big i think was really just an impatience on my part and a and a need to know um as quickly as possible and the, the way that you're gonna kind of be most reassured is by having a high number of customers um yeah you want percentages to be to be realistic you don't want skewed percentages because of low numbers um so yeah that's why I went in with a, with a higher budget, I guess. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think the the biggest benefit you get with having a lot of capital to play with, a lot of capital to invest in, in like a test like this or just in your business is that it does speed things up, but that doesn't mean that you need that kind of money to get started because you can always start at a smaller scale. You might not be able to move as quickly, but then but you can still do things at a much smaller scale and it might take a little more time in that, in that going the route with you know not having as big of a budget, but you know obviously it can still be done. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about you the way that you did the testing, because it sounds like you did a lot of, like you're saying, optimization and turning ads on and off. Um, so what were you, you say that you, you, you optimized the text, the images and the colors. Um, so how long of a timeline did you, I guess, run this test and how frequently were you um, revisiting it to, you know, make tweaks? Um, again, this is, this will be my impatience, but I was changing things on a daily basis. And I guess I had that luxury because of the numbers of clicks that we were getting to those ads in a 24 hour period. So if you're on a smaller budget, then you're going to have to leave a little, you're going to have to let it go for longer until you've got percentages that you can, that you think are reliable. You need to have a good, a good data set. So so yeah, I was making changes very quickly, and, and we were. This is a, it's a seasonal business. This, and we knew that we were entering a seasonal business. So this was kind of Christmas time, um, and we. I think when once we had the results that we were looking for, we did. We wanted the opportunity to make profit during that time because we knew Christmas would be the time to do it. So so we were working fast, and we wanted to. We we wanted adverts that worked and we wanted to know if they worked very quickly so so yeah we're making changes on a daily basis mm-hmm. and in terms of the ads themselves did you draw inspiration from anywhere like how did you know where to even begin with what kind of text to write or what kind of images to show like if someone out there was thinking about taking the same approach as you is there a kind of easy launching point or do you kind of just have to you know i guess um uh just just get started and you know try whatever comes to your mind yeah, so I, I can't speak highly enough of just doing research online. Um, I read, I still do read many, many blogs uh, on on digital advertising. Um, just tips and tricks from people who I trust. Listen, to, I listen to loads of podcasts, including yours, um, and that's that's how I built out my adverts. Was was just um, looking at examples that. Um, you know, from people who are, who are happy to offer that information for free. Uh, I, I didn't pay for any advice from anyone, so I, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. I think there's plenty of uh, free advice out there in, in blogs and, and podcasts. Mm. And can you give any of uh, an important tip that maybe you, you remembered to, to implement when it came around to running uh, Facebook ads? Um, an important tip... Maybe something that that you really made you made sure to implement when you came when it came time for you to create your own ads. I guess the, something that's very important is is making sure that you're advertising to the right audience. Um, the one thing that we did, I, I know Facebook has um, a very good method of building out your audience using lookalike function, where you can take your existing customers and you can. Um, you can automatically pull a similar audience based on people who have already bought from you. It was extremely useful. Of course, if, if you're a startup, then you, you don't have that luxury. So taking the time to actually think about what your customer 
in your mind, what type of person would they be? What would their interests be? Um, what might they be into? And just build out and, and test audiences. You know, if, you, if, you, if you get your demographic wrong, then um, you're just going to be wasting your money because you're showing your adverts to, to the wrong people. So that was, that's very important for us. Gotcha. Um, so what were the, uh, the results of this, uh, I guess, initial campaign? Did it match what you uh, expected? Yeah, it, it surpassed what we expected. Um, it, was, it was fantastic. Yeah, we, uh, when I look back now, if, compared to what we're doing at the moment um, and seeing how busy last Christmas was, yeah, the, the numbers were relatively small, what we were sending out. But uh, for us at the time, we were... This this operation just took over our entire house, so we ended up um, having to get in touch with wholesalers um, and just trying, kind of scrambling around, trying to find chopping boards and cheese boards and, and things like this um, from people who we could get them from. And we had a kitchen piled up full of uh, cardboard boxes and products, um, and we were we had a laser engraver in the, the second bedroom, and uh, yeah, it was just it for November and December that year it was it was just chaos and truth be told we came out of that Christmas and we hadn't really made a uh, you know a, a huge profit or anything but we'd sent out a, a good probably probably two three hundred products which for us in that short time frame was was great yeah we were really happy Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so at the time when you first started, was it just uh, these cheese boards? I'm looking at your site now, and it looks like you probably have, uh, I guess, almost 150 products on there at this point. Um, can you give us an idea of you know what you started with in terms of how many products, and how did you build that up over time? Yeah, so we literally started with just the the cheese board that you're talking about. So it's 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 a cheese board set. It's it's, uh, it's a wooden cheeseboard set that you open it's got knives inside and uh it just seemed to us like it was just this perfect christmas gift or i mean we we sell them year round uh, very successfully but it just seemed like this perfect gift for cheese lovers and we're cheese lovers and we just kind of thought well there must be you know so many people out there who would be interested in buying this for that person that they know who loves cheese so that just seemed like it could be a popular product for us. So all we started doing then was brainstorm and I think, well, what kind of designs can we put on, on this product? And, uh, and, and that's how it started. Yeah. So we, we kind of stopped making, I think you have to draw the line somewhere where we've, we turn one product into many products by putting different designs on them. But there becomes a point where you can almost give the customer too many choices. Mm-hmm. If you like, you don't want to, dilute your customers and just keep you know if someone's coming to your website to buy a cheese board and, and you've already got designs for kind of many different occasions um there becomes a line where i think you, you're better to move on and start looking at other other products so that's what we did but yeah we kind of maxed out designs on that and then we thought it's, it's time to start looking at other kind of products that that same type of customer might be looking for which is just outside that uh, you know that kind of product type 
Yeah, I want to definitely take a stop here and talk about this and because it uh, brings up two important things, which well, number one is that uh, sometimes people start with way too many things, too many products uh, right off the bat. I think that adds way too much uh, baggage and complication for you to kind of get the momentum you need to to run a business. Um, and the second thing is, you know, like you're saying, uh, knowing what to add next to your to your your product category. So obviously, I think you guys uh, took a much more gradual approach and did and just add a bunch of different types of products. Um, but now, but then um, for people out there that are thinking about, you know, they've gotten to a point where they're selling maybe one product or a couple of products and it's selling well, but now they want to um, offer more products. They want to be able to sell more things. How do you know, how did you figure out what to, to add next? Like, was there some kind of process you went through to figure this out? Yeah, you know, I, I should mention, Felix, as well, that the way that I just explained that is, is like it went smoothly. And like <laughs> the, yeah, it, it definitely did not go smoothly for us um, at the start. When, when, we decide, when we found that this particular cheese board was, was selling very well, um, I think we got, we got a bit excited and thought that, that, I don't know, you kind of have this, we had this idea that, that maybe we could be, you know, somehow competing with, with big businesses and maybe we can start branching out and our, our kind of criteria for what kind of product we could sell. Now I look back on it and it was far too wide. Um, we started selling products that were just made of wood, for example, um, things that we thought fitted that kind of, Mm. um, you know, workshop product that was kind of handmade wood product or it's rustic or it's vintage, and, and what actually happened was we ended up having a website that it looked like a busy e-commerce website like Amazon design-wise, um, but it actually had, you know, maybe 50, 60 products on it um, that were vaguely related. Um, and, and what that happened, what happened as a result of that is we ended up looking like, um, like we're not a specialist in anything, which I think is very important for a, for a small business. I think you need to you need to hone in on your your skill or your you know your individual you know value what it, what it is that makes you special and and just turn the volume up on that. Whereas we, I think we were trying to do too much. We had too much variation, and we we definitely saw that reflected in the numbers for the people who visited our website. Our conversion was extremely poor. Um, we we were applying to to sell on marketplaces, which is our biggest income stream now, and we were getting declined. And that was I, I know now why it's because we almost looked like we were com- trying to compete with those marketplaces instead of actually being a, a specialist mm-hmm. and being true to our roots and being true to who we are, which is a, a small workshop um, that just has a great uh, kind of attention to detail for every product, and we weren't really portraying that. So it was a big learning curve for us. We, we, made a, we had a big cull of a lot of our products and we, we had to hone in on what works um, and let's kind of narrow that scope of, of the type of product that we're going to sell. That's very interesting because when I look at your site, like you're saying that at one point you basically appeared as a site that sold anything and everything would. But when I look at it now, it looks not. It doesn't give that image off at all. And I think that that's you know credit to the kind of work that you guys have put in because there's maybe only now I look at it is maybe only four to five different types of products, and that's and it's very specialized as in 
they're very much focused on home goods and a lot of almost emphasis on food too, which I think uh, is what comes to mind when I look at it, which is totally different than uh, like what you were saying before when you guys made the mistake of focusing too much on just carrying anything and everything that was wood related. Um, so you were saying that you recognize that there needs to be a change because the conversions were poor. Now, when somebody looks at their kind of reports, analytics, and they see that their conversions are poor or some any other kind of statistic or data that looks poor, they start to think like, man, what could it be? It could be so many different things. You know, maybe they read online that uh, maybe because they didn't place a, uh, you know, a specific kind of image in this part of the website that could affect the conversion rate. So there's just so many different things that could impact your conversions. How did you guys know that the products, the product catalog itself was like the culprit? Um, it's a good question. I, I think um, a, a lot of it, honestly, would just be our own kind of analysis of our own website. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the results speak for themselves. Once we had cut the products and we had tried that, like maybe maybe that is the problem. Um, the feedback that we were getting from uh, friends and family and from uh, sales channels, from marketplaces was it precisely that so that that helped i would definitely recommend if if anyone is, is starting a business to contact um contact your friends and family and and ask for advice and make sure you're asking for honest feedback as as we know um our friends and family will be the first people to tell us that we're doing great yeah. <laughs> even if we're not necessarily doing so but if if we go into it and i actually wrote a personal message to um uh to all of our friends uh, all of our friends on facebook and i I put them into an Excel spreadsheet, and that was our, our kind of way of, of launching our website and, and getting our first sales was actually by writing a personal message to everyone um, and, and tracking the responses and asking for honest feedback. Um, and and that, that was actually mentioned in some of the feedback that it was unclear uh, kind of what, what the USP was for our business, I guess, what, mm-hmm. what it was that we were going for. Um, so yeah, but in many ways, the, the results kind of spoke for themselves. When we made that change and we focused on what was really working, it also helped us with the marketing. It was a lot easier to to decide what was the demographic that we were going to advertise this product to. When you when you sell all kinds of products, um, your customer audience becomes that much wider as well, um, which just makes things a lot harder and a lot harder to optimize. Yeah, that's a good point because you know, like you never see an ad online for a marketplace itself. You never, Amazon never says, "Hey, come buy on Amazon." You might see you know product listings from them, but if you become too diluted, like you're saying, where you become more of a, a marketplace that has no specialty, it's very hard to do the marketing. And I think that's a, a underlooked uh, or an overlooked, um, I guess, uh, point about why you do want to specialize is that when you specialize, everything else you do that is required for your business also become specialized you no longer have to do you know 10 different versions of each task anymore i think that that's definitely overlooked and i i think it's a great point uh so you these products that you ended up cutting or removing from your your catalog were some of them still selling like were you still making sales on some of these uh, products that that you ended up uh, removing um yeah yeah we were although to be honest with you i mean the traffic to our website was was very low, so you know, getting even getting a reliable conversion percentage um, was was difficult. But um, we we would have been getting sales on those, yeah. But the numbers would have been so low that 
it wasn't like we were losing uh, a big income as a result of doing that. I see. Yeah, cause, I mean, the reason why I ask is because, you know, obviously the way it played out for you guys, you took one step back by cutting those, uh, you know, revenue generating products out and then were able to take two steps forward just because and, and raise the, the kind of sales on your entire site overall. But it's definitely almost a scary step to take, right? Especially when you're starting a business and you are making money from something. It almost feels like uh, you're making the wrong decision by saying no, I don't want money for this particular product. Did you ever, did you feel that way at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was. It felt like a hard decision at the time, particularly because we'd invested in um, uh, product descriptions to be written by a content writer, and also we'd invested mm-hmm. in product photography by that point as well. So we'd gone in with both feet. We'd gone in. Um, you know, straight in with investing in this and, and deciding it's the right way to go to eventually go back and effectively throw those product listings in the bin and you know, that's money down the drain. Um, just hoping that it's the right decision to make. You know, thankfully it was. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, uh, a common fear and that that's kind of what weighs a lot of uh, early companies down is just that they don't, or have a hard time recognizing that they need to cut things out, and then making the decisions to, to you know, trim the fat essentially, because everything just seems like you don't want to make that decision. I think is a big part of it. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about you sent me an email, you know, before when we first connected, and you're telling me about how you know while we things that we're talking about right now, things are going great for you guys now, uh, but it wasn't always this great, right? So tell us a little bit about that first year uh, in business where you you know didn't have your day job job anymore and you're focused solely on this what was it what was it like was it a struggle was it uh you know pretty quiet what was the what was that that first year like i'd, I'd say it was uh, a huge struggle it was i guess the, the way i could explain it, i think a lot of people can relate to this when they start businesses that you just have this constant nagging feeling that you're just doing everything wrong and everyone else knows exactly what they're doing um and you're just not doing it right and I think I'm I'm terrible for being a perfectionist myself, so I was particularly bad at just, I had this kind of preconceived idea that before we launched this business, everything had to be perfect. Uh, everything had to be, um, all the, the design of the website had to be perfect and it had to be, you know, ready to, to make a big impact for when we actually put it live. The product photography had to be spot on, the descriptions had to be just right and, uh, and when I look back now, it, uh, it was definitely just the wrong way to go. It wasn't necessary for us to have everything, all the boxes ticked. Um, you know, we could have actually been trading during that time while, while I was stressing over just the small details that really most people probably wouldn't even notice but just really bothered me. I, th- I think it was more of, uh, I think it can be quite selfish uh, on my part anyway. I, I don't want to reveal um, this business that you know that I've been working on with with Sean to our friends and family, and I, I want it, I want to be proud of it. You know, I want it to look good, and I want it to um, to really look professional. And I think a lot of people will you know, probably struggle with that. The, you want you want it to be good, and you you don't want it to be subpar. When the reality is that I think that you should just get it up, start trading, and look at it as an ongoing project. It's, uh, it's, it's going to get to where you want it to be eventually, and right now it's, 
it might not be the prettiest website, but at least you can just get the word out there and start getting, um, you know, you can start building your, your your SEO reputation. You can at least start getting some organic traffic to the website. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect right away. So that was a big lesson for me. Can you maybe say, based on what you've seen or your experience, like what are some things that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs do waste a ton of time on early on when they uh, you know, could be trading, like you're saying, could be open for business and, and, and actually uh, building a business and making money? So what, what are some things that you've noticed that, that maybe um, some entrepreneurs out there could at least objectively think if they're wasting their time doing this or not? Well, I'm not sure if other business owners um, would be as bad as me, but the one thing that I was doing was, I guess, over-researching what it takes to be an e-commerce store online. So I guess it comes also from not having an e-commerce background. I felt like I'm the type of person that if I don't know something, then I I really want to go and I really want to find out and I want to be the best at it. And that's kind of what I did in, in this case was going far too much into detail and looking into um, like how to improve your conversion in your e-commerce store. And I'm looking at this as our e-commerce, did, it doesn't even exist yet. But mm-hmm. my approach to looking at it was if we're going to build a, an e-commerce website, we're going to have it perfect from, from the get-go. We, instead of it being something to be improved as we go along, we might as well do it absolutely spot-on. You know, immediately. So I guess I was over-researching um, improvements that can be made um, when we weren't really in a position to be doing that. We didn't even have any reliable numbers to go off uh, to even judge you know, what these changes would make or anything. So yeah, I would say just not to waste time on, um, on the details of, of improve, you know, making sure that your conversion is going to be spot on and, um, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've heard this uh, called uh, premature optimization, where you just spend way too much time on things that you don't need right away. I'm a big fan of, uh, I think I've heard it called just-in-time learning, because you can learn a lot of things and, and sufficiently, too, enough where you can can be good at it right when you need to learn it, right? And, and it's great that way, too, because when you actually need to know something and you go out and learn it, you are much more, I guess, efficient at learning it because you only learn about what you really need to know. And on top of that, you can put it into practice right away because these are the things you need to, uh, you're learning these things, so you need to be able to to use them. So I, I totally agree with you. I think, um, you know, certain courses, books and everything, they definitely have its place. But if it's what's, if you're spending time on that and it's what's holding you back from actually taking action and launching a business and just going out and talking to people, talking to customers and like what you were doing with your friends and family by getting feedback. Like if you're holding yourself back and, you know, sitting down and just kind of reading or about things even before you need to, um, you know, definitely take action, you know, don't spend the time learning when you're, you can't apply it right away. So uh, that really resonated with me when you say that, because that's definitely something that I think a lot of people struggle with. I struggled with it for a long time. And that's like the most important thing for me now is that I always ask myself, like do am I actually going to use this information like within this week you know if I don't then I try not to you know spend time thinking about it so uh, what about you like have you is this something you've gotten better at at and like how what did you do to you know move away from this idea where you made you know perfect enemy of the good to be honest with you, I don't think I'll ever quash that yeah. <laughs> part of it completely um because 
I am somewhat of a perfectionist and I, I do like to have things done properly and make sure that, uh, um, I guess we all like to feel like that our businesses are built on kind of solid foundations and mm-hmm. it's nothing worse than going back and having to uh, kind of change something huge that you've mm. put in a while ago because it's been done incorrectly. So I'll always have that nagging fear that that thing that we're doing, it's not quite right, but um, I've definitely learned from, I, I think, I'd honestly say I think that we wasted probably, definitely months, I'd, I'd say probably a two to three months of, of what you would call premature optimization, of just making sure that it was absolutely perfect. Um, even down to uh, SEO practices as well, making sure that all of our images were all named, um, you know, with, I was doing keyword research for all of the product, each in product individually, um, and thinking, you know, what keywords do I include for this image name for each one? So we've got five, five images per, pro- per product. And uh, I'm trying to spread those most popular keywords between those five images. And I'm just just going you know, far too much in, in, in that direction when really I could have spent that time. Uh, the, product, the product could have been up online and I could have been spending the time actually uh, just talking to people and, and getting the name up there and trying to get our first sales because that, that's ultimately the most important thing is is getting live and and getting the sales made. Mm. So I, I wish that's where I'd spent our time. Gotcha. So yeah, you said that um, you know the first year was a struggle. Uh, one of the things kind of turn around for you and you know give us an idea of, you know revenue wise like what you what were you doing back then in terms of revenue maybe within your first year or so and like you know how successful is the business today? So. Oh, we we traded for um, so when we properly proved when we thought you know this this business is a go around Christmas time and and we started selling that was only Christmas two thousand fourteen uh, Christmas two thousand and fourteen yeah and it's been it's just grown consistently from there really but previous to then when it was kind of a wedding stationary business that was dabbling in a couple of things and trying to use our engraving machine we barely turned over i think we must have turned over about twenty five thousand pounds in a, in a year mm-hmm. um and you know by the time you've taken that twenty five thousand pounds and you've paid out all your expenses and all your materials and everything you end up with a very very tiny profit at the end of it. So it, in our eyes, it was almost a non-existent business. But then once we proved the concept of it, and we picked our product range, and we and we decided this is a goer, and we got some office space and and actually gone for it. Um, just that was last year. So in twelve months, we collected sales of uh, uh, five hundred and fifty thousand pounds. That's amazing. Like that's pretty much, I mean, that's like a huge growth. Like what did you, what, what would you attribute that, that growth to? Like were there you know, specific things that you guys did? You know, I, th- I guess the, the product selection was a big one. Or is there anything else that really made you able to make that huge jump from, you know, 25,000 pounds to, uh, you know, half a million pounds? Yeah. The, there's one kind of overarching uh, reason as to why we had such, such fast growth. And that's because our, uh, we basically found our, our audience um, in in a marketplace. So we've, there's a popular marketplace in the UK called Not on the High Street, and um, we we'd actually we'd applied to Not on the High Street um, some months before, and we were actually declined by them um, for the reason that I spoke about earlier. So 
I think the design of our website was off. We looked like we were trying to compete with them in a way instead of actually being you know, a specialist kind of uh, crafty business. Um, so we kind of had a hard look at our website and, uh, and made sure that it kind of spoke about, about us and what we were actually like and what the business actually truly was. And when we kind of redesigned the website and narrowed our product range, they, they accepted us. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it was like we'd found our customer demographic. We'd found, um, you know, the people who want our product. So it was uh, it was a huge opportunity for us. We saw the sales coming in literally overnight, just from from uh, from finding that marketplace. So we uh, we we love not on the high street. They're the, they've just been fantastic for us, really, in the growth of our business, and that gave us the confidence to really push forward with it. Mm. So how does this work with these market with this kind of marketplace? I'm not too familiar with others that are you know maybe in the in the United States, uh, but maybe can, can you explain what not on the high street is like? You know, like how does it work for a uh, let's say let's start with the consumer and then tell us how it also works for a business like yours? Yeah, so not on the high street predominantly works with uh, kind of smaller businesses that might be kind of handmade, working from home, uh, small businesses um, or just businesses that that have a, a skill or a craft kind of element to them. So very much kind of like probably a similar audience to Etsy. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that. Um, yeah, so we, we sell successfully on, on Etsy as well. And uh, what Not On The High Street do is they, they, they allow you to set up a storefront with them, um, very similar to Etsy, and then you upload your products. And they will curate those products into categories that, you know that they think will be best uh, best appropriate for um, you know for events during the year, um, and and then yeah that they actually take a, a percentage of every sale. Uh, not on the high street, take twenty five percent plus plus uh, plus taxes plus VAT, um, which I think some people there's a lot of people who are not that keen on the kind of marketplace idea just because it does sound like quite a lot of money to be to be losing you know but for us to have your audience just brought to you uh, for that cost um, and for you to not have to be worrying about the marketing and the, uh, you know, the, the money that you'd be risking uh, up front, we just think it's fantastic. Once you've, I think once you've decided on your pricing for your product and once you've mapped it out, like we do, we have all of our products mapped out in Excel so we know exactly what kind of our, our available profit is on each product and and when you're happy to lose that 25% and and you you're comfortable with that then you know you don't miss it when you start seeing those sales coming through you you don't miss that 25% so do these um well, before I get there, these uh, these marketplaces. I've seen others out there where people are, you know, selling these marketplaces to obviously get the sales from there, but also just to get that awareness and build that brand and get 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 in front of an audience that like you're saying uh, that you weren't able to get in front of before. Is the goal at the end of the day to eventually drive them to buy from uh, DustinThings.com, like your own site, or uh, you know, what is or how do you you know they, they buy from you one time? On, on uh, not on the high street. How do you get them to repeat buy from you in the future? Yeah, that's something which is actually um, not very possible. Um, not on the high streets are a a marketplace for sellers, but not on the high street. They want the repeat customer. So, mm. although you are actually buying, um, you're selling your products to the customer, and from the customer's perspective, they're buying from 
uh, dusting things through not on the high street. Um, but when you sign up to not on the high street, you're agreeing that you won't include marketing material uh, in your mm. in your orders. So you, you we don't do anything to encourage customers to come through our own website or anything like that because we'd be in breach of our agreement with not on the high street. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess uh, tricky to 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 toe that line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's something. I I think everyone knows in e-commerce that um, your 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 biggest win is is repeat customers. If you can get someone to buy from you two three times, mm-hmm. you're not paying for the the cost of getting the customer to your website again, which is just fantastic. So so we've got methods on our own website of doing that, and we've got our own traffic to our own, our own website. But when it comes to the marketplace traffic you just have to accept that uh, that this is you still get repeat customers through the marketplace that's still worth mentioning that um not on the high street have got a great back office um platform where you can see when customers are coming back to you so as long as they're coming back to you through not on the high street they're not on the high street are happy um and to be honest we like the arrangement anyway because it keeps not on the high street alive. It keeps them, you know, mm-hmm. being able to uh, to prosper. And as, as long as they're prospering, then then so are we. So, so we're quite happy with the arrangement. Yeah, I mean, if the arrangement meant you went from twenty five thousand pounds to half a million pounds, I don't think that that's a, a bad trade off at all. I think that's a good good business decision. Um, so, I want to make sure I touch on a couple of things before we uh, close this out. So, the, one thing is about the customization and personalizations. So, what's involved in something in, a, in opening a business like that? Does it add a lot of complications? Like, what's the process like when someone comes on, they you know purchase a, a product, they want a particular engraving. And then they submit the order, and then what happens next from uh, from your end? Yeah, so normally with a you know a business that is kind of non personalized, you kind of have this uh, facility to you know stockpile products, and uh, and when someone orders, you package it up and you send it off to them. But as soon as you go on the personalized route, then it just makes things a little bit more complicated. Um, when each product is is made individually to a customer's uh, specification so we have to have a a very robust process within our workshop that enables that that process to work so so what actually happens when a customer actually places the order they tell us um what personalization details they want on their on their product um we've got a professional designer in uh, who works for us Steph and she'll pick up the order and she actually has numerous templates for each one of our products um, which she can kind of edit and design around. We don't restrict on the, the number of characters on messages or anything like this like other websites do. So we definitely want to kind of differentiate ourselves in that way that we're a design-led business. So we've got a designer who actually sits there and designs each one individually. And then what Steph does is she saves that design that she's made. That then goes to a, uh, a shared um, file storage system and we've got an, an engraving department then uh, like a making department uh, in our workshop and they'll be able to pick up that design engrave it onto the uh, the product um, the, the packing step kind of follows the customer journey as it goes through uh, from being made so the engravers can actually take that design apply it to the product um, some, sometimes they actually have to make the product as well we do, we do jewellery which is actually cut from wood and engraved as well. Um, so there's there can be quite a lot of manual labour in there 
uh, as well. And then it goes over to our packing department um, where they'll stack the, the products and, uh, and they're packed up and checked and, and sent off. Mm-hmm. So what about the, um, the business that you have to run yourself? Like what kind of uh, tools and apps do you rely on to help you run the business? Uh, so we actually use quite a lot of, uh, of Shopify apps. Yeah, tell us. Um, are you ready? <laughs> yeah. The audience loves hearing uh, these apps that the, the uh, owners use, so list as many as you can. Yeah, so we use that. So, so first of all, we've got MailChimp. So we, we have a, a big focus on our website of, of getting uh, email signups. Um, we actually give away a free personalized key ring for everyone who signed up to our mailing list mm-hmm. as well. So right. if anyone's listening, fancies a, a free key ring, then go on and just pop your email address in at the top of our website. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, so we have a MailChimp. Uh, we have an autoresponder campaign set up for our emails. Um, so we use the MailChimp app to, to link to that. Uh, we also have uh, Yotpo for our reviews. Yotpo is great because the, they actually encourage sales as well. So we've got that linked to our social media. So occasionally it will automatically post a, a recent five-star review from a customer. Um, and say, were you interested in buying this product? Then you can click here, and that's driving sales, uh, driving traffic back to our website. Um, and then we use uh, an app called Stitch Labs. I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, a, a program called Stitch. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's just a way of us bringing sales in from multiple sales channels into one place. So it links to Etsy, uh, Amazon, and our own website, and it just saves... Um, the admin of, of having to go into each kind of back office to, to find our orders, uh, which is a really useful app. Um, but then we also use Product Customizer, which is just so customers can enter their personalization details in on, on each product. Uh, we use an app called CrossSell, which is for kind of recommending similar products. Um, so using CrossSell, you can actually create um, individual product recommendations for each product, for each product, so you can have it automatically select products like you've not, like you normally find on Amazon or any mm-hmm. kind of place. But we like having the ability to choose specifically what products that we are recommending um, uh, to those customers. Um, you can pick your your kind of your upsells, the things that you know that might be a little bit unusual but makes sense for that product. Um, we also use customer pricing. Uh, an, app, an app by Bowl. Um, the reason why we use that is we we do sell at trade price to uh, small gift shops. So customer pricing basically allows you to uh, change the price of your products on Shopify for dependent on the person who's logged in. So we basically give out trade login details um, to the businesses, and when they log into our website, the prices will automatically be dropped by a certain percentage for them to buy at a lower price, so that they can make a margin selling them um, as as dropship products on their own stores. Mm-hmm. Um, we also use Reamaze for our customer service, which we find very helpful for um, uh, bringing all of your customer service into one place. So if you're using multiple sales channels like us, um, it's just good just for being able to track it and respond just in one you know, clean app. Uh, we also use an app called Nudge, which is 
just a little reminder for customers of a uh, a 15% off when you spend over 50 pounds. So it's it's great for um, you can choose kind of where you want these messages to appear. But for us, when a, when a customer adds a product to their cart, it will just come up at the top of the page and it'll say that you're, for example, it'll say you're 23 pounds off saving yourself 15%. Mm. Yeah, those always get me to buy more. Whenever I see something like that, whenever I see uh, uh, this kind of nudge thing like you're saying, it makes me want to, oh, I should buy some more just so I can meet those minimums. Yeah, it works really well for us. And it's kind of just a little subtle thing. It doesn't have to uh, kind of encroach on the space of your website. It's not a banner unless you want it to be. But we've just got it as just a very subtle pop-up. But it, it really does work. A lot of people use that discount code. Um, we also use an app called uh, Currency Converter Plus because we do sell worldwide as well. So uh, we have a lot of Australian uh, and USA customers. And it's just nice to know that when they arrive on our website, the, the currency will automatically be changed um, to their country of, of origin. Um, we also use an app called uh, OptiMonk, which is for our offer pop-up when the customer accesses the when they first visit the page. Mm-hmm. So at the moment we're doing some multivariate testing on that where we're changing um, the, the kind of colors and the text on these pop-ups just to see what's having the best response to, uh, to email signups. So we're, we're showing them a, a picture of the, the free keyring that you can get and um, yeah, encouraging email signups. And that's about it. Awesome. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. So, so what are the uh, the plans for, for the remainder of this year? You know, you guys definitely did an amazing job last year growing the business. What do you have planned for uh, 2016 to keep it going? Um, the, the biggest thing for us is, is creating new products. Um, when you're on the, the marketplaces as we are, like but not on the high street, there's just huge opportunity in kind of accessing uh, different types of customers, people who are looking for different things on that marketplace. So we, we've kind of identified that as our biggest win, if you like. I'd encourage anyone who's, who's in the process of kind of the early stages of their business, if you can identify where's the best place that we can put our, our time and our money and what's going to have the, uh, the quickest return. Um, and for us, it's just new products. So, so we actually dedicate time every day to discussing and designing new products because it's, it's the quickest win. We, we can create a new product and we can have it photographed and, and up online within a, within a matter of days. And it's, uh, it's extremely rewarding to see it selling and, uh, and making money immediately. That's so, yeah, that's the, that's the big one for us is, is product design. Awesome. Um, so thanks so much, Mike. So dustandthings.com, D-U-S-T-A-N-D-T-H-I-N-G-S.com is the website. You mentioned that you might have a discount code for the listeners. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we are giving a, a 25% off uh, discount. Uh, if you just use the discount code Shopify Masters during checkout, and that'll take off your 25%. So yeah, we, we sell worldwide. So there you go. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate that. Uh, anywhere else that you recommend the listeners check out, they want to follow along with more of your your story and all the products that you guys offer? Uh, yes, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can get links to those from our website as well. But uh, yeah, Dustin Things blog as well. We, we kind of heavily invest in, uh, in good um, content, which is 
actually engage in, um, which is you know applicable to to what we sell. So yeah, I'd encourage anyone to check out our blog as well. Yeah, definitely sign up for the email list. Get that uh, free gift. I just signed up myself, so looking forward to that. Uh, cool. Again, thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit Shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.